0: podcast number 727 for the 22nd of January 2021. This week, if you've recently bought a new computer or you plan to buy a new computer anytime soon, you might be wondering what to do with the old one. There are lots of options, the worst possible choice being to put it in the trash. Let's consider the better options. In short circuits, last week I described how I gave up on repurposing an M2 drive for my primary computer as a fast cache drive. Well, using a $15 case for the M2 drive, I have turned it into a fast cache drive anyway. Just not quite the way I had planned. If you're trying to get rid of spam, maybe you've thought of changing your email address There are some other steps you might consider, but a better path involves an application that examines email before it gets to your computer so it can flag suspected scams. In spare parts, only on the website, it's easy enough to rename the boot drive on a Windows computer, but there are some pretty good reasons why you shouldn't. I ran across some ancient history a week or so ago, In June, it will be 26 years since I spent a week at New York City's Javits Center for PC Expo. Windows 95 was about to be released, and I have pictures. And 20 years ago, Amazon still hadn't turned a profit. That's hard to imagine, isn't it? A couple of weeks ago, I described some of the things you might want to consider when looking at new computers if you've decided to replace an older computer in 2021. If you did that, or you plan to, you might be wondering what to do with the old computer. Although there are doubtless other possibilities, four primary options come to mind. These include installing Linux on the old computer, turning it into a Chromebook, giving it to a friend or family member, or donating it to a charitable organization. Just because the computer is too old to run the latest version of Windows well, or to run the programs you want, doesn't mean it's worthless. Putting a computer out for trash collectors to carry away is the worst possible option. So what about Linux? Well, if you've been wondering about Linux, it is easy to replace Windows. Most Linux distros have two installation options, one for those who understand disk partitioning and the multiple partitions that a Linux installation needs, and another for those who don't know and don't care to know. Choose the second option. Accept all the defaults that the installer presents, and you'll have a brand new shiny Linux computer in less than half an hour usually quite a bit less than half an hour. One of the best Linux distros for Windows users is Linux Mint, which is based on Ubuntu. You'll find a link to Linux Mint on the TechBiter Worldwide website this week. There are literally hundreds of Linux distros, but they're all based on just a handful of primary distros. Mint and Ubuntu are the primary choices of new users. Linux Mint looks a lot like Windows, You'll find a menu button that serves the same purpose as the Windows Start button, a file function looks a lot like the Windows File Explorer, and the Settings panel bears more than a passing resemblance to the Windows Settings panel. I have a Toshiba computer that had Windows 7 installed when I bought it, so it would have been manufactured in 2009 or maybe 2010. It's more than a decade old. It is running Linux Mint. Although I don't use the computer a lot, it does serve as a good way for me to keep an eye on what's happening in the world of Linux. And whenever the topic of Linux comes up, I have to admit it would do everything I need if I didn't depend on some Microsoft and Adobe applications. The second option might be to recycle the computer or donate it to a charity. The old computer may look like junk to you, but somebody might be willing to buy it. If not, you can donate it to an organization that will be able to use it, or give it to a recycler who will keep it out of a landfill. Bible Money Matters offers a list of 10 places where you might be able to sell or trade old equipment. You'll find a link to Bible Money Matters on the TechBinder Worldwide website, along with links to the other locations that I'll mention here. Sell Broke is a company that I dealt with in 2019 when my wife's old computer finally broke down for the last time. You can see my description of that procedure in the July 28th, 2019 program. Again, a link is on the TechMiner Worldwide website. Cellbroke buys Windows and Mac OS laptop computers, various kinds of phones, desktop computers, cameras, tablets, and other miscellaneous gear. They paid me $44 for a computer that was useless to me. If the computer is still in working order and relatively new, five or six years old, There are organizations that will accept it and make it ready for others who need a computer. A Microsoft service will help you find a computer refurbisher. It's always better to keep computers and other electronics out of landfills. Another good source to locate organizations that accept computer equipment is provided by TechSoup. Again, you'll find links to all these on the TechBiter Worldwide website. For devices that are older or no longer work, check out Earth911's Recycling Search Service. It really is important not to toss electronic devices into the trash because they will end up in a landfill. Computers contain valuable and sometimes dangerous materials. Chromium, lead, and other heavy metals, and substances that reduce flammability, are all used in manufacturing computers. If you donate the computer to someone who will reuse it, it's essential to remove licensed software that you've installed on a new computer and any personal information that's on that old computer. This is less important if the computer will be disassembled for component recycling, but it's still wise. The best way to strip personal information and licensed software from the computer is to use a utility that deletes all data on the disk and then writes nonsense data to the disk using several passes. That's because just deleting files and even formatting the disk won't remove the magnetic traces of data. Several common utilities have functions to perform this task. If one is not installed on your computer, there are free open-source utilities. More information about that in just a moment. When you donate a computer to a library or a charity, include all of the peripherals if you got replacements with a new computer. The keyboard, the mouse, any packaged software, and any accessories that came with the computer will help a school or a nonprofit or a charity put the computer back into use quickly. The Licking County Computer Society runs an electronics recycling event every year, usually in September. They accept old computers, faxes, printers, monitors, ink, cartridges, batteries, and cell phones in working or non-working order. Televisions and old-style CRT monitors are not accepted. Number three, you might want to give the computer to a friend or a family member. Does a parent, a child, a cousin, aunt, or uncle need a computer? Now, the danger involved in giving a family member your old computer is that you will probably be considered the de facto tech support person for the device forever. So that's something to think about before deciding to hand it over to someone you know. And the same preparations you'd use to prepare a computer for sale or donation apply here. Or maybe you'd like to turn the computer into a Chromebook. Converting a Windows computer to run the Chrome operating system is not a trivial task, but PC World has an excellent article that describes how to perform the conversion of a Windows computer to a Chromebook-like computer, and what to expect. It uses Neverware's cloud-ready operating system that is based on the Chromium OS. There are limitations. For example, you won't have access to the Google Play Store, and that might be a deal breaker for you. If not, the result will be a computer that's nearly identical to a Chromebook. I've mentioned preparing the computer to protect your data a few times, so let's look into that a little more deeply. If you're a criminal or a terrorist, you will want to prepare the computer before you sell it or give it to somebody. Likewise, if you have a stash of porn on the computer, or even if you're just a regular citizen who has email addresses, bank account information, and documents that you would prefer the entire world not have access to. Your tax returns, for example. This is not important if you're planning to install Linux or to convert the computer to a Chromebook. After all, you'll be keeping the computer in that case. But it is important if you'll be doing anything that involves giving someone else access to the hardware. Your private information might be stored in the computer's memory, but only when the computer is on. The only locations you need to be concerned about are the disk drives in the computer. Deleting folders and files isn't enough. Deleting files and folders doesn't really delete the files and folders, it just marks them as deleted, and you won't see them in the File Explorer or any other application that displays files and folders. Recovering the files and folders, though, is trivial. You might think that formatting the disk drive would destroy all the files and folders on a drive. It does make it a little bit harder for criminals to recover the data, but the process isn't difficult. What you need is an application that securely deletes files and folders. These aren't difficult to find, and many of them are free open source applications. If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, might you consider a donation? There are no ads here, and support from listeners is the sole source of income. It's easy. Just visit the website and click the donate button near the top of any page. You can make a one-time donation or schedule a repeating donation every month. I thank you. And so does the cat. In Short Circuits, last week I described the process of replacing the solid-state boot drive in a computer with a larger drive. I had wanted to use the old M2 solid state drive as a device for fast caching of photo, video, and audio files. The computer didn't recognize the M2 drive though after I installed the new SSD, but I found a quick easy solution. The computer has a Thunderbolt port in addition to USB 3 ports. Depending on which generation of USB 3 is being used, data rates range from 5 to 20 gigabits per second. Thunderbolt can transfer data at 40 gigabits per second. It would be nice if you could just plug an M.2 SSD into a Thunderbolt port, but it's not quite that easy. But it's also not much harder than that. I found an aluminum M.2 SSD enclosure manufactured by SSK on Amazon for less than $15, so I ordered one. When the device arrived, I placed the M.2 drive in the enclosure's tray, slid the tray into the enclosure, and inserted a screw that SSK had provided using the screwdriver SSK had provided. Total elapsed time, less than five minutes. The cable has a thunderbolt plug on each end, but SSK also provides a thunderbolt to USB 3 adapter, so I connected the drive to a USB 3 port, and it was immediately recognized as drive N. As you may recall from last week, the M2 drive was the original boot drive in the computer, so it had four partitions. The EFI system partition, the partition that had been drive C, the recovery partition, and a bit of unallocated space at the end. Using AOMI's partition assistant, I selected each of those partitions and marked it for deletion. The application noted each request and placed it in a queue to be executed when I clicked the apply button. With all of the existing partitions deleted, all of the space on disk 7 was unallocated, so I needed to tell the partition manager to create a new partition and to use all the space on the drive. The job was added to the queue following the four deletion actions. With the partition changes made, it was time to format the new partition. I wanted to use all of the space in the partition, format the partition as an NTFS drive, and assign drive letter N. That final job was added to the queue. With six jobs in the queue, it was time to have the partition manager execute them in order. That process took less than two minutes. And once the process was complete, I wanted to disconnect the drive from a USB 3 port and connect it to the computer's Thunderbolt port. The drive was immediately recognized and mounted as drive N, and although it wasn't necessary, rebooting the computer seemed to be a prudent step at that point just to ensure that the drive would be recognized and mounted properly. It was. And although it wasn't necessary, I chose to run Crystal Disk Mark to benchmark the process. To get a good comparison, I also ran Crystal Disk Mark on the new boot drive, drive C, and on one of the mechanical drives, drive H. The results speak for themselves, and you'll see an image on the TechBiter Worldwide website that speaks very clearly, but I'll speak for them anyway. There are sequential and random read and write tests. For an SSD, the sequential tests tell the tale. The random read and write tests have little meaning. Even so, you can see the Thunderbolt drive is up to 161 times faster than the mechanical drive. That's because SSDs don't have to reposition the heads. There are no heads. The sequential read and write tests are the important ones for SSD performance. The numbers shown are the average results of five tests. Read tests were 142 megabytes per second for the mechanical drive. 455 megabytes per second for the Thunderbolt drive, and 542 megabytes per second for the new Samsung boot drive. Write performance was similar, 147 megabytes per second for the mechanical drive, 442 megabytes per second for the Thunderbolt drive, 476 megabytes per second for the new boot drive. This should make a significant difference for applications that cache data. There is no foolproof method to eliminate spam, but there are some actions you can take to reduce the amount of crap that makes it into your email inbox. The solution, though, may be more inconvenient than the problem. Most people have a single email address for everything, and that might be part of the problem. I have a personal address and a TechBiter address. I use those two for just about everything. Some people suggest having one email address that you use only with friends and relatives, and a secondary email address that's used only for subscribing to mailing lists, setting up accounts on commercial websites, and things like that. The theory is that the protected address won't get any spam. Eh, that's possibly true. But if you set up a new account that's to be used only by friends and family, you'll have to notify each and every one of them that they should use that new address. Some will, some won't. And you'll doubtless continue to use the old address for mailing list subscriptions and for your accounts on commercial websites. So you won't really get any less spam. The spams will just be divided between two or more email accounts. Those who promote the use of private and public email addresses point out correctly that virtually every commercial website includes in its terms and conditions the right to share your email address. And by share, I mean they will sell your address. Having two or more accounts does nothing at all to address that issue. You'll also be told to use only your secondary email address if you make a public comment on a website – sign up for a contest or a special offer, or when you create accounts with social media sites such as Facebook, Pinterest, or LinkedIn. So after doing all that, you'll have two or more email accounts, and you won't receive any less spam. Now I mentioned that I have two email accounts. Actually, it's worse than that. My internet service provider created an email account for me. I check it about once a year. Creating an Outlook account for use when I sign on to my Windows computers created an Outlook email address that I do check regularly. There's my primary email account. There's a TechBiter email account. I check both of those very regularly. And there's a Gmail account that's used primarily for communications with Google, but it's also a backup account. Oh, and I have one account that is used exclusively for communications with one specific client. And there's one more email address that I use only for communications with banks. Only that last account has never, ever received a spam. So instead of playing games with different email accounts, I use Mailwasher Pro. That's an application that checks my email accounts every 10 minutes, and then it uses a variety of methods to identify spam. There is a free version of Mailwasher, but it's limited to monitoring just one email account. Mailwasher's filtering method starts with whitelists and blacklists that I've provided. Whitelisted addresses will never be tagged as spam. Blacklisted addresses will always be tagged as spam. The whitelist, which Mailwasher calls friends, and the blacklist can include specific addresses, domains, and entries that include wildcards. Users can also write their own complex filters, use SpamCop and spam House services, and use a new service called First Alert that keeps a list of known spam emails. Additionally, Mailwasher learns by watching which emails it hasn't classified to understand whether you choose to consider them good or bad. In other words, its accuracy improves over time. I'll probably tell you more about Mailwasher Pro in a later program, but it's just one thing to keep in mind if you're trying to get rid of spam. You won't have to filter spare parts to get only the good stuff. Just head over to the TechBiter Worldwide website, and this week you'll find these articles. It's easy enough to rename the boot drive on a Windows computer, but there are some good reasons why you shouldn't do that. I ran across some ancient history a week or so ago. In June, it'll be 26 years since I spent a week at New York City's Javits Center for PC Expo. Windows 95 was about to be released, and I have pictures. And 20 years ago, Amazon still hadn't turned a profit. Pretty hard to believe today, isn't it? Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide